Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. In Episode 5, the British, the Canadians, and everyone else, we learn in detail about Allied command structure and armaments and the disastrous practice run for D-Day, Operation Jubilee. I'm Robert Child, and Episode 5 of D-Day in 90 Minutes will begin in a moment. I'm Robert Child, and I'd love for you to join me on my brand new podcast, Stories of Faith and Courage. In gripping narratives, we'll walk alongside ancient heroes who face down giants, conquering adversity, and hear tales of modern-day warriors whose unwavering faith sustained them through the darkest of times. Plus, we'll explore enigmatic ancient mysteries like the connection of the Shroud of Turin to the Knights Templar that will leave you on the edge of your seat. I hope you'll join me on Stories of Faith and Courage. It's available now on your favorite podcast platform. D-Day in 90 Minutes. Written by William Bradle, Robert Child. Narrated by Travis. The British, Canadians, and everybody else. Bring back as many of the chaps as you can. General Bernard Montgomery. D-Day was to be an Allied operation. All the leaders wanted as many participants as possible from as many different nations as possible. The Americans did not want to look like they were running the show. The Americans landed 73,000 soldiers on D-Day, the British 62,000, the Canadians 14,000, with everybody else, the French, Polish, Norwegians, and others making up the rest. Although the Americans made up the majority, it was not an overwhelming majority. It was important for the world to see the joint effort at D-Day. Although the United States would arm over 12 million men in World War II, the British a bit more than 4.6 million, and the Canadians only 780,000. The Americans would carry the load to end the war. But on D-Day, it was crucial to include all the Allies to make it a joint venture. The British had been in the war since 1939, although the vast majority of the troops on D-Day had never seen combat. Their nucleus was the 200,000 British troops rescued at Dunkirk, where they lost all of their equipment. The intervening years were spent building up defenses against a German invasion and rearming, often with U.S.-built weapons. The British also suffered from the memory of World War I. Most of the British military leaders were young lieutenants in the trenches, and the horror of going over the top, along with massive casualty lists, made them risk-adverse. A charge across open beaches looked very familiar to charges across no-man's land. Churchill was torn over the invasion. He wanted, and had urged for years, attacks in Italy, Greece, and the Balkans. He referred to Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe although it would turn out not to be the case. Churchill also had Gallipoli on his mind, the disastrous invasion of World War I that resulted in his being thrown out of the government. His pragmatic side knew an invasion of Northern Europe was inevitable, and he knew it early. In October 1941, he told Lord Mountbatten, you are to prepare for the invasion of Europe, for unless you can go and land and fight Hitler and beat his forces on land, we shall never win this war. The invasion was on. 
The British prepared by finding ways to limit casualties through embracing technology with radar, specialized tanks and vehicles, deception, and knowing what the Germans were thinking and planning, because the British had cracked the Enigma Code. Despite the British advances in technology and breaking the German code, on June 6, 1944, the British Tommy would cross open beaches the same as his American cousins. The British 2nd Army, made up of the British 50th Infantry Division, the Canadian Infantry Division, and the British 3rd Infantry Division, would land on Sword, Juno, and Gold beaches, the easternmost beaches. The British 6th Airborne Division would land the night before and secure the bridge across the Orne River, codenamed the Pegasus Bridge, after the flying horse symbol worn on the shoulder patch of all British airborne units. The bridge was formally named the Pegasus Bridge in 1944, as is its 1994 replacement. The Tommy in 1939 was a volunteer, who was most likely serving in one of the foreign outposts of the British Empire. The Army was based on mobility and technology, not size, as size cost money. After the expenses of World War I and the Great Depression, Britain didn't have any money. With the beginning of the war, the Army was widely expanded through the draft. By 1944, the Army was contracting because of the lack of manpower. Members of the RAF were being transferred over to the infantry. The structure of the Army was similar to American and German structures, with a division numbering 18,000 men that included three infantry brigades and an artillery brigade. Each brigade had three battalions broken down into companies and platoons. As with the Germans and Americans, the Corps was the rifle squad of seven riflemen and a three-man Bren gun team supported by mortar squads. The squad leader, a sergeant, usually carried a Sten machine gun, while the riflemen carried the 303 Enfield. The iconic Sten gun is a cheap, light machine gun, taking its name as an acronym from the designers Major Reginald V. Shepard and Harold John Turpin of the Enfield Company. The S comes from Shepard, the T from Turpin, and the N from Enfield. Over four million were manufactured. The Sten gun has five moving parts and was made out of mostly stamped parts with a small amount of welding. It is gas-operated and fires a 9mm pistol round which limits the accuracy to only 100 yards. As with most cheaply made things, there were problems. The gun would jam if the feeding magazines became dirty or debris-filled. The standard fix was to remove the magazine, tap it on the knee, and reinsert. Most machine guns have some loading problems, and troops quickly figure out the fix. In the Vietnam War, the early M16 models would jam. The quick fix was to slide a bicycle spoke down the barrel to eject the cartridge. The Sten's advantages outweighed the disadvantages. It was cheap to make, took about five hours to manufacture, and could be made in small shops spread across England. It was inaccurate but deadly in close combat. The soldiers had a love-hate relationship with the Sten, some nicknaming it the Stench Gun, and it remained in service until the 1960s. While the Sten gun was a new invention in World War II, the British Lee Enfield 303 rifle was put in service in 1895 and remained in service until 1957. The Enfield was the standard rifle for the British, Canadians, Australians, and South Africans in World War II. 
The cocking design allowed for 20 to 30 shots per minute. Better than the Mauser, but much slower than the American M1 semi-automatic. The Enfield had a 10-cartridge magazine and an effective range of 550 yards. Over 17 million Enfields were made. A three-man team carried and worked a Bren gun, taking its name from the Czech town of Brnau, where the gun was designed and initially manufactured. It fired the same bullet as the Lee Enfield and was worked very much like the BAR in the U.S. Army, except from a more prone position because of its 22-pound weight. In dress, the Tommy looked pretty much like his father in World War I, with a flat helmet, tunic, fitted pants narrowing over his gaiters, and boots with steel tips. The third largest Allied force were the 14,000 Canadians landing at Juneau Beach on June 6th. The British at the beginning of the war outfitted the Canadians because the two countries agreed in the 1930s to use standardized equipment on the assumption the two countries would always be on the same side. Britain cut off aid in 1940, and Canada increased local manufacturing or bought from the United States. The Canadians were also one of the few groups that had beach landing experience, and it wasn't good. In August 1942, 5,000 Canadian troops, 1,000 British commandos, and 50 American rangers landed at the city of Dieppe as an experiment to see if an invasion was feasible and as a sop to Stalin. The forces were only going to hold the city for a short time and then withdraw. The naval bombardment was minimal to minimize damage to the city and civilians. The Germans knew they were coming. They were giving information from French double agents, and they were waiting. Of the 5,000 Canadians, 3,367 were killed, wounded, or captured. The 2nd Division did not land on D-Day. The 3rd Division landed on Juneau Beach. British Commonwealth troops from Australia and New Zealand participated in the D-Day landings. Much smaller contingents of infantry and paratroopers came from the exiled forces of France, Poland, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Greece, and what is now the Czech Republic. Even Luxembourg was represented with citizens on both the Free French and Belgium contingents. On D-Day, the main forces were the Americans and the British. As cautious as the British were, they didn't shrink their responsibilities. The Americans believed, and they were right, their massive arms and number of men would overwhelm the Germans. The British would maximize their technology and their gift for theater and minimizing casualties while winning the war. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of D-Day in 90 Minutes. Join us next time for episode six, The Leaders. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.